Today is very exciting because Yimrat Hashem, Be'ezus Hashem, we are going to start Pedig Yud Beis, chapter 12. Why is that exciting? Because we want to become Beninim. We want to become that's right. And that's right. The name of the book was Sefer Shal Beninim. In fact, it still is Sefer Shal Beninim. And Pedig Yud Beis, chapter 12, starts with the word Baha and the Beninim and the intermediate. So we, I think last class, we did Yud and Yud Aleph at once. We did 10 and 11 together, right? Okay, so just to jog our memories and get us back into momentum, chapter 10, could you give me a title for chapter 10 without looking at the Tanya map? Two types of tzaddik. Two types of tzaddik, okay, fine. Um, and if I were to ask you to get a little bit more specific, what are the two types of tzaddikim? Complete and incomplete, okay. And in chapter, what, what would you call chapter 11? Spiritually bankrupt. Spiritually bankrupt, yeah. Chapter 11, spiritually bankrupt, that's right. That, that's the cute title. But no, sometimes cute is good, okay. What's the uh, parallel title? You said chapter 10 was two types of tzaddikim, so... Yeah, so the parallel title of chapter 11 would be two types of rishoyim. And what are the two types of rishoyim? Complete and incomplete, right. All right, and let me just ask you, The this is a leading question, but it's okay, because it's not a quiz. Um, it's just to get you thinking again. How broad of a spectrum is the category of incomplete Russia? Giant. Giant, yeah. It's pretty much every nice, normal person you've ever known is probably... In that spectrum, if they have ever surrendered behavioral control at the level of action or even speech or even thought, willful thought, even once. Yeah. Pretty happy. Okay. Bahabainini, chapter 12. And, yeah. Did it even once? Yeah, if he did it once, but yeah. He could, but because of Tshuva, he could still be inside it, can't he? He doesn't stay in a complete rush. Okay, so the question was, well, he did it once, now he's out of the running for the rest of his life? Okay, so actually, that's a great question. And actually, I would have gotten to that um, when we started Chapter 12, but since you ask it now, it uh, deserves to be answered now. One of the things it says in Chapter 12, toward the very beginning, is... That the Benini is a person that he never was over an Aveda. He never was. He never will. Which seems to imply that once somebody has done one Aveda, they're out of the running for the rest of their lives, so what's the point? Benini is somebody who's never done an Aveda and never will do an Aveda. They will never surrender behavioral control. They never have, they never will. So, if you read that, it sounds like it's saying once somebody's done it once, that's it. They can never become a Benini because now they have that, that mark in their past and that's, that's it. I told you guys the joke, right? Probably in the first class. Why not? I could recycle it. About 
They told us in school, practice makes perfect. And then they told us, nobody's perfect. So I stopped practicing. <laughs> I told that one already? So, if, if you need to even ha have a perfect past, even if from now on I control myself perfectly, I'll still never be a Bainini. What's the point? So, the answer is like this. When it says a Bainini has never done an Aveda, will never do an Aveda, remember that Bainini is not something you are born as a Bainini. Um, a Bainini is a decision that you make. Thank you. A decision that you make, in fact, it's not a decision that you make one time in your life, like, I'm making a commitment from here on out to be a Bainini. A Bainini is an ongoing commitment every moment of your life. So, it's a state of being. It's a state of being. And if you're in that state of being called Bainini, then as long as you've made that commitment, for, for as long as you've made the commitment or been making the ongoing commitment to Bainini, you have not ever slipped once. And you will never slip once. What does that mean? It means a Bainini isn't just somebody who hasn't had an opportunity to do attempting enough Aveda. By default, let's say, I had opportunities to do Avedas, but they weren't ones that were tempting enough for me, so I haven't gotten motivated enough to sit yet. But if there would be a good enough temptation, I, I would do it. That's not a Bainini. A Bainini is somebody because of their commitment, because of a decision, an ongoing decision. That it, 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 doing Avedas is off the table. Not going to happen. <clears throat> so when we say that the Bainini never did an Aveda, he'll never do an Aveda, what it means is when you are a Bainini, once you become committed to that, to that state, it means that it is not on the table, it is non-negotiable. Surrendering behavioral control at any level for any amount of time with any one of your three soul garments is not on the table. It's not going to happen. And it never happened as long as you made that commitment for as long as you have been committed to being a Bainini. That's what it means. And, okay, so that's semi-clear? Yeah, so you could recommit. You could fail and recommit. You could you fail and recommit. Pay, no, yes, that is correct. You could fail and recommit. That so is correct. So you're vacillating between... Well, you're saying vacillating. Let me put it more... Let me, let me, let me so soften that. Let's call learning curve. Okay. So let's say there's a learning curve till a person became a Bainini where he was not yet a Bainini. By the way, if he's vacillating between Bainini and and Rasha Vitoivloi, he's not really vacillating, because he's not really a Bainini for a moment, because there's no such thing. Well, hold on. Now now I have to really... Now you're making me get technical. That's no, okay. It's a high-level course, so we will... There's two ways of looking at Bainini. One is the technical terms. Avedis HaBainanim, and there's Dargis HaBainanim. There is such a concept, and sometimes when I'm presenting the concept, I, I, dafka, I deliberately choose to present it this way because it's more palatable to people. Just mentally, it's easy to get your mind around. Um, that a Bainini is 
Well, I, 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 I use the story. There's a story that I heard from a shliach. It's a shliach in Florida. When he grew up, he, he lived in Montreal. And he and his brother, they're both shluchim in Florida, he and his brother were roommates. And from time to time, their uncle, or great-uncle, as it were, who was a great mashpia, a great uh, Hasidic mentor from France, anyone knows, who knows a little Chabad can fill in the names, but you can do it on your own. Um, he used to come and visit Montreal, and he, they would, they didn't have a, you know, a palatial estate. They had a certain amount of rooms. So this great uncle, who was this very uh, venerable sage, used to room with one of the boys. One of the boys would be ejected from the room and go sleep on the couch, and the other boy would be his roommate. So they were eight years old or six years old, and one of these, um, these boys, he says, he doesn't remember exactly how old he was, six, seven, eight years old, he's rooming with his great uncle, the venerable sage, who he was known to literally to, to, to daven all day. I mean, he would, his preparations for davening were, were longer than, much, much longer than most people's davening. I mean, to, to, to state it mildly. And he was just a very, very spiritual person. People even used to murmur a little bit. And if you know a little bit about Chabad, Chabad culture, you'll understand it. it wouldn't be polite to say it, you know, out loud. But people used to murmur that this guy's a Bainini. And the boy had picked up on that, that his great-uncle was a Bainini. So one time he asks his great-uncle, he says, Fat Rebisto, Bainini? He says, Uncle, are you a Bainini? And, and rather than answering yes or no, the great-uncle says, you could be a Bainini. Just as simple as that, you could be a Bainini. So the boy is just sort of listening, listening quizzically. And the, the, the great-uncle says, go take a Sefer Tehillim and start reading. So he takes a Tehillim in his room and he starts reading Tehillim. And a minute goes by. And after a minute, the great-uncle says to the boy, he says, tell me something. For the past minute, were you doing anything you're not supposed to be doing? He says, no, I'm just standing here. Were you saying anything you're not supposed to be saying? He says, no, I'm saying Tehillim, though. That's good. Were you thinking anything you're not supposed to be thinking? He says, no, I'm just thinking, I wonder why I'm standing here saying to him. <laughs> that's it, that's <laughs> it. And the great uncle, the accused Bainini, or alleged Bainini, says to the uh, nephew, he says, good. Now just keep that up for the rest of your life. And he, I mean, it is a cute story, and it does always elicit a giggle, but he didn't mean it humorously. On a certain level, okay, now you see what it is. It's not that much to it. That's a minute. You tasted a minute of it. Now, if you can do that for every minute, sometimes one minute at a time, recommitting minute after minute after minute, then that's abandoning. So, what I want to say is, there are two ways of looking at it. From one perspective, abandoning is not so, it's not so sophisticated. It's called behavioral control. It's called impulse control. Exercise it. Do it. It's only behavioral. On the other hand, at the same time, I don't want to diminish the fact that there is something called the Aveda of a Benini, where the Benini has to actually commit 
and has to be devoted to exercising this type of control. And it's not merely behavioral. There's, a, there's an emotional devotion to being that committed, to being that in control. Now, can he change his emotions? No, but that's what we're going to get into. That's what we're going to get into as we start <laughs> defining the, the Benini in, in contrast with the Tzaddik. That he cannot control his emotions. But he does control his behaviors. Okay, so let, let's try to get into this a little bit. What does it mean the Benini is in control of his behaviors? And that he's so in control that it is off the table, there's no discussion that there will be any loss of control. First thing to understand is there is a, there's a passage from Zayar that is quoted in, in chapter 12. And it, it's, fairly, it's fairly famous, it's well known, I mean it's famous in Chabad, which is Hamayach Shalat Al-Alev the brain rules over the heart, and, and the full quote that the Alter Rebbe brings, that the brain naturally, innately rules the heart. Innately rules the heart. In fact, the, the Rebbe uses um, almost repetitious, repetitious seeming language to drive that point home. The, you know, the, that this is how a person was formed, by, by the nature of his formation. In other words, this capacity for the brain ruling the heart, it's innate, it's native, it is inborn. I mean, how many other synonyms do you want? The point is that it is wired into the person. The capacity for impulse control is hardwired. Okay. Now, why is this an important concept? Remember, I think I told you in the first lesson of this class that sometimes I have been privy to studying chassidus directly with Hashem himself as my chavrusa. I mentioned that to you, yeah? And I told you that I'm not delusional. So I want to... Remember that? Yeah. Yeah. So I want to tell you another one of my stories. I don't have a lot of these stories, but I have a few of them. I want to tell you one of the stories where I where Hashem himself taught me what Hamayach Shaltalalev means. The story goes like this. I'm going to make a bracha shakal on this coffee, by the way. I have a sore throat, as you can hear. And the hot water is going to help me, I'm hoping. Excellent. It's actually, it's a tea. It looked like a coffee, but it's a strong tea. Okay. Okay. So there was one time that thanks, I was, this was many years ago, um, maybe 15 years ago, I'm just guessing, I was in the car with my wife, and I, I'm certain that my wife had been driving. I don't remember her driving, but from the setup of the story, I'm certain that she had been driving. And we were parked in front of a grocery store, and she ran in. Um, I was alone in the car, in the parking lot, waiting for her to just run in and get a few things and come back out. And I think the situation was that it was close to Shkia. It was close to sunset. And I hadn't finished the daily Tehillim. That's what um, I remember. And I, was, I had my little chitas, you know, little uh, book. And I was saying Tehillim 
in the car, you know, do 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 quickly, you know, saying tell him, you know. And because I'm looking in the tillum, I'm not really that aware or that interested in anything that's going on around me. But I sort of become, let's call it unconsciously aware or marginally aware um, that in my peripheral vision, there's a woman coming out of the store, coming out of the grocery store, and she is um, holding the hand of, I'd say, a five-year-old child, five-year-old boy, and she's walking very, very briskly, like she's, you know, agitated. She's walking very, very quickly, and she's walking closer and closer and closer, and she's making a beeline right for my car, and she's getting closer and closer and closer, and she comes up, like, within inches of where I'm sitting, and then I realize, and I'm like, this is, this is, I'm trying to register what's going on, and then I realize, ah, I'm seated in the passenger seat of my car, she's going for the driver's side of her car, and I'm parked on the left, she's parked on the right, so it has nothing to do with me, she's not even aware that I'm there, that's just where she happens to be headed. So that's, I, then I became aware of the fact that she's opening up the back driver's side door, She's putting her child into the, the um, car seat. She buckles him up, closes the back driver's side door. She opens the front driver's side door. She gets into the car. She closes the driver's side door. And the whole time, I'm sort of observing this, and I'm literally this far away. You know, like, I'm here. I'm sitting in the passenger seat of my car, and here's the window. She's here. There's, here's like, the window of her you know, driver's side of her car, and she's sitting right here. So it's not, you know, it's a few feet away from me. But I'm, like, behind my little book, like this. So I guess I'm camouflaged. Or she's not looking, or she's not thinking about other people being there. And as soon as she gets the driver's side door closed, in other, in other words, it's, as soon as her, her vehicle is, you know, closed up, she turns around, and I see her scolding this kid, and she's saying, how could you do that? I told you never to do that. And you're embarrassing me in the storm. And she's, and she's yelling at the kid. And as she's yelling at the kid, all of a sudden, somehow, she becomes aware that I'm right there behind my little book. And all of a sudden, she's like, <laughs> she stops yelling at the kid, because polite people don't scold their children in public, um, depending, you know, on your cultural norms, but generally speaking, you know, in uh, the neighborhood where I was shopping, that was not something that people do, and immediately she stopped scolding the kid, she turned around, and she drove off. Okay, that's the story. So I want to ask you a few questions about the story. You followed the story? Okay. At what point did this woman, well, I mean, you're going to have to make some assumptions here, and I have no proof for them, but they're educated guesses. At what point in the narrative did the woman feel, begin to feel like screaming at the child? Well, I won't say screaming, I'll say disciplining. Somewhere inside the store. Somewhere inside the store. In other words, before the narrative even... Mm -hmm. 
started. I could only tell you from where I became aware of it when she exited the store. Looked like she exited the store already feeling agitated. So we're going to assume, and I agree with you, that she began to feel like disciplining the child back in the store. Okay. At what point did she actually engage behaviorally in giving vent to those feelings? When she thought she was alone. When she thought she's alone, okay. No, her actions when she was walking towards the car, she was agitated. Okay, so her actions, you're saying that, that the way she was to walking the toward the car, yeah. she sort of, her agitated walking belies the fact that she is irritated. And that also, okay. that affects the child. And, okay. And, and I would say, yes, I agree with you. And maybe I'll make a distinction and say that that might not have been conscious. I'm going to guess that it was not conscious, walking a little bit more um, briskly, walking a little bit like she's feeling uptight. Probably not a conscious behavioral choice. But turning around and reprimanding the child and saying, I can't believe you, I've told you so many times, I'm quite positive that's a behavioral choice. And how, by the way, how do I know it's a behavioral choice? She well, from how do I know it's a behavioral choice? Because she, she controlled herself until she got to the car. So I know it's a behavioral choice because I'm guessing, and I think I'm right, that she wanted to do this for a long time before, but she held off until she got to a place where she felt it was socially appropriate. So she was able to hold in her behavior for as long as she deemed necessary. Okay. Now here's my next question, which is, after she began to give vent to her emotions and allow them to be expressed behaviorally, after she actually allowed her emotions to unfurl, how long did it take her from the point that she willed herself to stop? How long did it take her to stop? Yeah, there's no time. No time. No time. If I'm driving a 12-passenger van 80 miles an hour down the highway, which I would never do that. I don't even know. I've just heard about people doing it. Okay. <laughs> but let's say all of a sudden you have to stand on the brakes. How long is it going to take that vehicle to actually come to a stop? A, a long time because there's, there's momentum, right? So my emotions are like that 12-passenger van careening 80 miles an hour down the highway. And she's upset. She's been, you know, she had that emotion inside since back in the store. And I told you, and you, you're embarrassing me, and now it's finally coming out, and it's flowing, and all of a sudden the brain registers, not safe, you know, not appropriate. And then it's like a 12-passenger van going 80 miles an hour, you touch the brake, boom, and it stops immediately. Well, that doesn't skid an inch. Like stopping on a dime. That's even more impressive. More impressive than, you know, when I ask you how long did she feel like unleashing those feelings and, and you're saying before I even became aware of her, before she entered the story. And so that's impressive, you know, that self-control. But then even more than that, while she's in the midst of it coming out, and she's able to stop it at will, immediately, with no lag time. Mm 
and no delay. Okay, so then the question is, the question is, what, what method, what technique, what, what tools did this woman employ that gave her such a high level of impulse control that she was able to inhibit her behaviors the whole time in the store and in the parking lot, and that even more so, that when she wanted to um, stifle a behavior, she was able to cut it off in a millisecond. What technique or method or tool was she employing? So you call it mind over matter? Yeah. Okay. Self-control. Hard wiring. Yeah, I agree. It's hard wiring. She didn't learn this method anywhere. This is factory installed. So when the Alter Rebbe says that that the brain innately rules the heart, that this is the way a person was formed by the nature of man, what he means is, this isn't something that you have to go out and develop, you have to go out and cultivate. This is the hardwiring of a human being. It's impulse control. Hmm? I, I find in today's society that there's a lot less impulse control. That is true. That people don't care what other people are thinking. They don't care if they're private, they're public. You they're are correct. Rage, and they're going to continue because they don't care if he's in the You audience. are 100% correct that in today's society there's a lot less, of a, a lot less impulse control. My question to you is, has the wiring of the human brain changed in a generation? Priorities have changed. Priorities have changed. So when people say... I couldn't help myself, right? Like, could it be that the wiring has changed? No, it's not that the wiring changed. It's that the priority they don't care to control themselves. So the guy who says that you know, I'm sorry, but when my wife did whatever it is that I told her not to do. And then I have to scream at her. She made me scream. I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. If you make me that angry, I'm sorry. Unfortunately, I've heard this yeah. from... Abusers. Abu yeah, it's called an abuser, right? But people who seem normal, except for the fact that if their wife speaks some way that they find emotionally intolerable, that I, I'm, so, I'm not a bad guy. I just I couldn't help it. Well, you made me that angry. And, and you asked these guys... I have asked these guys, and let's say you were road raging out on the highway, and some, and somebody decided to respond to your road raging, and some big, tough, huge guy gets out of the car, and he's ready to fight, and you size him up, and, and, and you realize that he could destroy you in one punch. With all your adrenaline flowing, do you have to scream at him, or do all of a sudden you get real quiet? Okay? You make a decision not to scream at the guy. So the person who says, follow me here, follow me here. I couldn't help, you just made me that angry. Okay, first of all, nobody made you feel anyway. You chose to feel that way. But let's take that, let's not even have that discussion right now. Let's suppose, doesn't matter how, how you became that angry, you are that angry. No problem, no problem. Let's not figure out who made you that angry. Did you do it to yourself? Did I do it to you? You're that angry. 
But now there's a whole other discussion. Now that you have such strong feelings, are you compelled to translate that into behavior? No, you made a decision. So when the abusive husband is that annoyed toward his wife, he makes a decision. He will express it behaviorally. But if it's some other guy, some big, tough, six foot six, 400-pound guy on the, on the road, who's road raging with him, he makes a judicious decision. Oh, I think I'll keep this emotion to myself. So, and that ability is hardwired. So what you ask, does society have less inhibition? We don't have less inhibition. We exercise less inhibition. So, you know, and by the way, I think this is an idea that is difficult for people to grasp, even though the Alter Rebbe says it in like four or five different words in a row. He says it about four or five different words. This is innate. You don't have to go out and learn this. And yet, I ask people all the time, students of Tanya, people who had studied Tanya since their youth, who here has Mayach Shalat And you know what, everyone, everyone demures and everyone giggles. I'm talking about the real initiated students of Tanya. Oh, halavai, oh, I wish, if only I had... And, 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 and I mean, it's, it's, it's uncanny how, how predictable that reaction is. And I'll always say, but the Alter Rebbe says you were born with it. You don't mean you don't have it, you mean you don't exercise it. I'm going to just further this point here. We have to call bluff on a... I will give it credit as being an unintentional lie. It's, it's a falsehood. It's not, it's, not a, it's not an intentional lie, but it's a falsehood. The excuse, you know, I don't know what happened. I just lost control. It was just so... My, my emotions were so strong, so overpowering, I lost control. Right, so it could be the guy who says, you know, he, I was just that angry. I was just that hurt. I was just that enraged that I couldn't. If you would have your buttons pushed like that, you also wouldn't be able to. Or, you know, people say, I was just that tempted. I just felt that passion, that excitement. And I, at that point, I, you know, I didn't, wasn't even thinking about what's right and what's wrong. I just got carried away. Okay. So Denial. Let, don't even know I am lying. Yeah. yeah everyone hears it? Mm -hmm. Denial is uh, Rosh Tevis. It's an acronym. Don't even know I am lying. D-E-N-I-A-L. Don't even know I am lying. What, what's the lie that I don't know that I'm saying? I, I lost control. I, I don't know what to tell you. I lost control. If you really lost control, if you actually lost control, control of your behaviors. Let, let's take out the moral indignation for a second so we don't get all emotional about it. Let's just put this out on the table and look at this objective, objectively. Somebody just told you, I exercised a behavior, but I was not in control of it. I, I didn't choose to do it. I don't know. I'm just sitting here and I have this tick that sometimes I could just be sitting here and I'll throw a hot cup of tea in your face and nothing personal. I, I don't even choose to do it. Just, it just... Happens before I can even be aware of it. So, I would say to such a person, okay, no judgment, 
Okay, clearly you're telling me that's not a moral choice you're making, so no condemnation here, but you have a neurological problem. You have a neurological problem. You just told me that you're not in control of your behaviors. I don't think it's safe for you to drive. Because what you're telling me is you could be out on the road and all of a sudden just decide, or not decide, find yourself careening off the, uh, off the road and just go fly off the, go fly through the guardrail. If you really believe that you don't have control over your behaviors. But you said you, you even have control over your emotions. So, we don't have control over our emotions. We have control over whether or not emotions will become behaviors. So I can't, I can't necessarily directly do anything about the fact that I feel... You said no one made you that angry. You chose to be that angry. I said let's take that discussion away off the table right now. Oh, so I said let's not get into be, that. Don't go... No, let's just say you are that angry. That's a fact. You are that angry. So I don't know what happened. So if I somebody says, I'm so angry I could kill. You know what I would say to that? Okay. Maybe you are. But if you make the next step of the logical fallacy and say, and therefore, I couldn't help but kill him. Well, you could help. You chose not to. Well, when the emotions are so overwhelming, it's almost like temporary insanity. See, now you're buying into the I same am. culture. No, I do believe that. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Nobody loses control. I'm sorry, I just lost control. No, stop saying that. Stop saying that. If you really are self-diagnosing yourself with a neurological problem, go see a doctor. Don't apologize. Go see a doctor. If you really don't have control over your behaviors. No, so, but they're, they're Be honest and say, I made a choice to surrender control. Now, what do my, my emotions have to do with it? We're going to get into this later in Tanya a lot more, but... I found it too emotionally uncomfortable. I found it emotionally distressing to deny myself the behavioral outlet that I was craving. And therefore, I made a choice to give vent, to give expression to my emotion. But that would be more accurate. I, I found it too uncomfortable to control myself, therefore I chose not to control myself. Is that the same as apologizing? But there is a sequence of temporary insanity legally. Legally, that's an excuse. If buttons are pressed too much, yeah. too often. If it's then just a society, you're still going to go to jail. No, no, not for temporary insanity. You've heard of the Twinkie defense. So, how the, yeah, Twinkie defense, yeah. But how secular law will define it is really irrelevant to our discussion, right? Totally irrelevant. Um, we're Jews. So, Dina de Dina, and if God forbid, you know, you're in a, you're at a, in a murder trial, uh, it will be judged according to secular law, but it's really irrelevant to our discussion of the truth right now, which is, the Al-Tareb is telling us, boys and girls, you were born with impulse control. You don't have to go out and get it, you don't have to learn what it is. It's hardwired. Hold on, because I, I want to continue moving it forward in the chapter. Okay. 
the Chiddush, the news, the news flash of chapter 12 is, you might think, I know this is very hard for this to sound like a novelty in a post-Tanya world, meaning Tanya has gotten out there enough in the past couple hundred years that it's hard to imagine the way people thought before Tanya. But imagine yourselves in a world before Tanya existed, and you really think that there are two options. There's A and B, there's Tzadik and Russia. The way that, not the way it's being defined in Tanya. Basically, the way that I understand it, let's say, from my own reading of the Gemara, and I believe that either I'm a good person or a bad person, and I'm really confused about the fact that, you know, I'm the biggest hypocrite in the world because sometimes I do good things, but I have bad motives, and sometimes I do a good thing and I have good motives, and the next second I have a bad motive, and then sometimes I give in and I do a bad thing. What's going on with me? I'm a mess. And, and, and the Altadeva comes along and says, you know what? There's another category. And let's go back to what we learned in the first eight chapters of Tanya, right? That we have insides and we have outsides. Emotions and behaviors. The Altadeva comes along and says like this. What you're feeling is not so important right now. We will get to it. Later on in time, we will address our feelings and how to work on our feelings. But right now, chapter 12 at least, don't worry about your feelings. It's okay. It's a, I, was so, I was so angry I could murder. Okay? That's part of the spectrum of normal human emotion. But it's not part of the spectrum of normal human behavior as defined by the Torah. It's not acceptable behavior. So just focus on behavior. <laughs> Whether you want to define it as a minute-by-minute -minute choice, where I choose not to misbehave, or, and we were talking about before, about there being really two ways of looking at a vanity, or even we look at it from the, from the deeper way of defining a vanity, which is, I've made a commitment that behavioral lapses are off the table. Even that way of looking at a Bainini, which is really the true way of looking at a Bainini, which is behavioral lapses are off the table. Emotional lapses are totally on the table because I don't really control that. They happen automatically. But behavioral lapses, they're not up for discussion. And, and how? How can I make such a commitment? How, in the, how can I have such chutzpah, the audacity to make such a commitment? Very simple. Because all it takes to make this commitment is something I have already. I was born with it. The brain rules the heart by birth. It's innate, it's, it's inborn, it's natural. It's natural. Which I think also, incidentally, is a counter to those who would argue that inhibition is unnatural, right? Oh, if I don't do what I feel like doing, you know, it's not natural. No. Inhibition is natural. It's part of your nature. You don't have to go out and learn 
inhibition. Now you have to learn social mores, you have to learn in which situations to inhibit yourself. That's learned. But the capacity for self-control is not learned, it's innate. So the alternative is the big news here. Imagine yourself in a pre-Tanya world, and somebody comes along and says, hey, you know that thing you do when <coughs> you cover your mouth before you cough? Right? That was a real cough, by the way. But it was at the right time. You know that thing you do when you cover your mouth before you cough? Yeah. That's, that's called inhibition. That's called self-restraint. Yeah, it's not a big deal. Everybody does that. Yeah, exactly. Everybody does that. So here's the thing. Just apply that to all of your moral dilemmas. Oh, get out of here. That's a joke. No, 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 no. It's, it's pretty serious. Apply that to all of your moral dilemmas. Yeah, but still you don't understand. I'm still conflicted. Yeah, it's okay. You can be conflicted. Yeah, but it wouldn't be authentic. It's okay. It's, it's natural. It's natural to control yourself and not be authentic. Yeah, but I feel like doing the wrong thing. Yeah, well, you're in luck. You're not being judged by Hashem. Hmm. Uh, in, in terms of what you feel like doing. Hashem's not judging you based on what you feel like doing. You are accountable to a code of behaviors. 613 mitzvahs which govern your life govern your behaviors. And now, here's the doozy, but we should be prepared for this because of things we learned in the first eight chapters, and I hope uh, we'll recall this. When I say you can make choices about your behaviors, I mean action, I mean speech. Don't say, oh, it just slipped out. I didn't mean to say that hurtful thing. No, no, you made a choice. And I even mean thought. Remember we spoke about this before? About the knock at the door? Remember we spoke about this? The, the knock at the door. I can't control the impulse for thought. The fact that this is gurgling up from my subconscious and it wants me to think about this, this subject. But I can make a decision not to entertain it as a focused uh, fantasy or meditation or whatever you might want to call it. So, behavioral control is natural, it's normal, it's the most normal thing in the world. And that's what you need to apply to your moral dilemmas. And if you were really pure and innocent, coming from a pre-Tanya world, your response would probably be something like, What? That counts? You can do that? Really? That's okay? Like, you mean, you mean to say, I feel like a rotten person on the inside, but as long as I control my behaviors, I'm good? And, and... Tanya's answer is, yeah, yeah, you're good, yeah. I mean, let me put it to you this way. Not only you can do that, it's not just you can do that, you must do that. You are responsible to do that. You're responsible to make the right behavioral choices. In action, and in speech, and in thought, every single time. Every single time. Rabbi Tavon, back to the lady and the angry child. Her, um, she stopped because she saw you. Yeah. 
something about that. Is it trying to understand she wouldn't have stopped right. if she didn't see you? So right. what was, can you help me with that connection? With the story of the lady in the parking lot with the angry child? Why she stopped when she stopped? Yeah. Well, obviously her decision to stop was based on certain priorities that she has and probably based on social norms and mores. So in her world, it is inappropriate to scold one's child in front of anybody else, but it's not inappropriate to scold one's child. Like for instance, I don't think she would hit the child, God forbid, even in private. But there's certain things she would do in private that she wouldn't do in public. Now, my, my point, I don't want you to get caught up on the muscle. The muscle's just a muscle. Don't get caught up on what behaviors she was willing to do in public, what behaviors she was unwilling to do in public. That, that's irrelevant. The point of the marshal, and the reason it's instructive is that a person with no training, with no, with no particular um, advanced um, methodology, just because this is how people are wired, gets to make these choices. And we, not only do we get to make these choices, we make these choices all the time. We make these choices almost so quickly that it's almost um, not conscious. We make these choices all the time, throughout the day. Um, like, let, let, let me ask you a real question. Before they put in all the red light cameras, were your behaviors different? No, and I would just get lots of I think most people would say they drive differently because of the red light cameras. Now that's not a thing that you would be aware. You wouldn't be aware of on a 30 minute drive, you made 20 different decisions having to do with red lights. But now with, with the red light cameras, you look back and you realize, yeah, you made 20 different decisions. And by the way, our feelings about the red light, if I could get on my soapbox for a minute here, you know, I think the red light cameras are not safe. Because sometimes I make decisions which I think are less safe because I want to save the ticket. I don't want to get a fine. So I'll stop hard and make a decision I think I feel it's less safe. But I know I don't want the ticket. So I make, I make a... It's funny how quickly I can think. I make a decision based on priorities and I make a behavioral choice within, you know... A fraction of a second. My point is, my only point, we do this constantly. We do this all day. And what the Al-Tareb is saying here in chapter 12 is, you want to get started? You want to get started? Let's get started. The first tool I want to give you is a tool you already have. You don't have to go out and develop it. You have it. It's called simple impulse control. It is inborn, it is innate, it is native, it is natural. However many synonyms you want to use, you already own it. Now just apply it. Take that and import it into your moral life. Question. Yeah? What the choices that you're making to your benefit? In other words, she stopped yelling because it was embarrassing, it didn't feel good. Right, right. right. 
So all the, the choices, even the, the, the red light camera, you're going to get a ticket. Everything, right. is, everything is to your benefit. Moral choices okay, you make aren't a good necessarily... Point. You say the, the, the example of the woman in the car. There's some ego. There's some she made self, the decision to inhibit herself because she didn't want to feel embarrassed or whatever it is. Or the red light camera example. You make a decision because you don't want to pay the ticket. So the, the point, and you make a good point, is it's between... They're both self-interests, and I just make a decision which is a greater self-interest. Naturally. N right, naturally, okay. So you, you do make a good point that in the examples we're given, we make one choice between one self-interested uh, scenario, like, let's say, the woman in the car. She feels like scolding her kid, and the you know, person wants to just do what they feel like doing. So she feels like doing that. Ah, but she feels like not embarrassing herself even in front of a stranger. So she feels like not embarrassing herself in front of a stranger more than she feels like expressing her frustration with her child. Okay. So there the dilemma is between two self-interests and the question is which is a greater self-interest? 100% correct. So what I'm saying is that what the Altadeb is teaching us to do is not exactly identical to what we already do or we'd already be doing it. If it were exactly identical, then we would already all be Bainanim, which means perfect behavioral adherence to Torah, without any flaws. So it's not exactly identical to what we already do. But the premise is exactly identical. So what I'm saying is, just to take that premise, that when I need to make a choice, I have flawless potential to implement my behavioral choice, take that and just move it into your moral life. Move it into your moral life. So, to put it in really simple words, you don't feel like doing the right thing? Okay, so force yourself. Eh, but it won't be pure. Don't worry about pure. Force yourself. Ah, oh, but I don't know if I could really... Yeah, you could. We force ourselves all the time. We do things that are uncomfortable all the time. Just take that same exact natural capacity to make uncomfortable choices and put that into your Torah life. So imagine, if you will, let, let's try to wrap up chapter 12 here in the next minute. Imagine, if you will, the person who comes to the Alta Rebbe. We mentioned before that you know the, the Tanya was written as a substitute for Yechidas, for personal audience. Imagine the person who comes to the Altareb in personal audience and, and they're complaining, what's wrong with me? I want to serve Hashem and it's so difficult. So the first few personal audiences, like we learned, you know, the first eight chapters, were really just a vocabulary. And some of that came as a great relief because just having knowledge of my condition, like knowing about this dichotomy, that's a relief. Even though I haven't been given tools yet how to manage it, but just knowing that there's two parts of me and two different drives, two different souls, that itself can be a relief. But then as we move on and we start to gain tools, this is really, I would say, the first big tool in Tanya. Chapter 12, first big tool that we're given. And it's, and it's interesting, the first big tool we're given is not a tool that we're really given so much as a tool that is identified within us. Well, you know that thing you do already? Being made aware of it. You're being made aware of it, that's right. Um, 
So imagine the person who came into Yechidus, he came to the Alter Rebbe with the initial motivation, what's wrong with me? I want to serve Hashem, but I can't do it. I'm having mixed results. I, I, I don't know, I, am I a hypocrite? Am I, am I, am I lying to myself? And, and the first thing the Alter Rebbe said is, hold on a second, there's two yous, so to speak. Okay, fine, great. That gave me a little relief, but now what do I do about it? What do I do about it? Now we're being told what to do about it. Okay, so here's what you do about it. When there's a conflict between what one you wants and the other you wants, just make the right behavioral choice. That's it. That's it? That's the whole thing? For now, yeah, that's the whole thing. For now. So at, at, at the point we're at, chapter 12, what's my, what's my tool? I have one tool, really. When one you, your drive for selfish self-preservation, wants to make one choice, and the other you, your drive for absolute surrender into the oneness of, of everythingness, wants another thing. And only one behavioral choice can come of that. Just make the right choice, regardless of what you feel. That's it. Yeah, that's it for now. That's it for now. And as we continue through Tanya, we'll be given more tools. We'll be given more tools. But for now, this is the first one. Become aware of the fact that we have the capacity to choose our behaviors and just start being more mindful about exercising that God-given natural power that each one of us has. Sound good for now? For now? Okay.